I actually grew up in Iran during the time of the Shah, and I was highly protected as a child because I thought every child was supposed to be kidnapped, and that's why we had police bodyguards. I had no idea that we were very wealthy. But I was a very different uh, sort of kid from the rest of the kids because, um, can I just ask everyone not to take a picture? Um, um, because the, I'm a bit neurologically challenged, I'm going to tell you in a minute, and then uh, I forget what I'm going to say. I was um, very different because I, I was born premature, two and a half months early. I was only one kilogram. They didn't put me in an incubator. They thought I was going to die anyhow, so they sent me home with my mother supposedly to die, and I survived, but I survived with a cascade of difficulties, neurological difficulties, processing problems, stairs still to this day look flat, um, and I constantly used to fall down the stairs. I had reading and writing problems, and uh, anything that I wanted to do was really, really difficult because I couldn't visually process anything, things like skiing, ice skating, and I always had to feel things. But, you know, I, I grew up in a family where um, people thought I was just different, but um, they didn't make me in any way feel bad. It was like a given. My brothers used to say to um, their friends, oh, she's plugged into a different socket, leave her alone. You know? <laughs> so, and then what happened is I ended up at Sherbourne School for Girls in Dorset, age 14. My mother forged the common entrance paper because I would have never been allowed in. <laughs> and, and I was, <laughs> I was in the bottom set. So we were clearly five kids who were clearly common entrance mistakes. And I, I had this sense of an incredible disparity between my intellect, uh, which was in a way very ferocious because I grew up in an environment of learning, but a, a complete incapacity to keep up with things. Um, and then the Iranian revolution happened and my father was taken as a prisoner. I was uh, left here with no money and uh, the bank manager emptied my father's bank account, paid the school fees, and I started working with children. But I knew as a nine-year-old that I wanted to work with children. I already told my family I want to open an orphanage and dedicate my life to childhood. And my mother, who's a cross between Sophia Loren and Elizabeth Taylor, took one look at me and thought, oh my God, what have I given birth to? And that was it. <laughs> but we got on. But the reason I'm saying this to you is that I had this idea that your mind could be different and also that it could adapt. And this was a sort of given that I had. And then... Um, about 18 years ago, I ended up in some railway arches in Camberwell setting up uh, a project that I thought was going to be for children aged under 11 about whom we were worried because school was closed. And we wanted to look after them during the holidays and then return them back to school. But what actually happened is the word spread across the streets and in within weeks, a couple of weeks at the beginning, we ended up with about a hundred adolescent boys from the local gangs around Brixton and Peckham. And they used to come on the premises 
and pull out knives, rip the furniture, set the cushions alight. There was this sensation of extraordinary threat. Uh, I felt out of my depth. I didn't understand a word they said. All the clinical books I'd read, all the Freud, Jung, Klein, uh, was completely redundant in this situation, you know, all the psychoanalysis. It, and I, I was forced to kind of think about these kids and the way they were. And at nights I used to go home and think, oh my God, what have I started? We don't have any money. These kids are pouring in through the door. They're so violent and they seem so disengaged from anything in society. And before we could draw breath, another 120 or so children of drug addicts started arriving. And we had this community of what I call underground children. They were not in anyone's system. And it's very interesting, the statistics from that period and now are pretty much the same. 84% of the children arrived homeless. And this data I'm giving you actually belongs to research that University of London carried out on our premises. 84% were homeless, 87% uh, have psychiatric and emotional difficulties, 81% are addicted to substances, of whom 90% describe their immediate family members um, getting them on drugs, and then 82% uh, are criminally involved. And most recently, we brought UCL to look at uh, this group of kids and of the cohort they looked at, one in five had been shot at and or stabbed, with 50% witnessing shootings and stabbings in the last year, and one in four of their immediate family members and friends have been shot at and or stabbed. And then if you look at sexual abuse of the cohort, it's 15 times more than controls in the neighborhood. So this isn't a particularly vulnerable group of kids. And I, what I wanted to talk to you about is I ended up actually interviewing 400 of these children in great detail. And I've written their life stories down. I will never make them public. But they, they were some of the most intimate and moving conversations. And they happened over a period of time and I discovered that actually out of this cohort of 400 that I was looking at, not a single one of these children hadn't been chronically maltreated. They were sexually assaulted, they were physically beaten up, uh, they, were, they were in situations where the perpetrator would attack them and there would be no one to protect them. And it was as a result of these conversations that I began to realize that the divide between social care and medicine is a mad one. When you look at the way trauma translates itself in, in the sort of personhood of these kids. And that's what I want to share with you is just a moment of an encounter that these children have to just show you how many systems are actually involved in generating and sustaining the traumatic encounter. And because there are such multiple systems involved, 
we have to consider that we may potentially be operating along the lines of a very flawed clinical paradigm in relation to the most troubled children and young people. At the moment, the framework we use with these children is one of uh, assuming that their uh, negative behavior will be corrected if we apply sanctions and rewards. So the construct with which we tend to approach these children is one of punishment. And actually, if you look across the world, there is over 70% reoffending rate. And recently, I spoke to head of a youth offending um, program who was actually inside government, and he said the figures are underrepresented. It's actually much more. It's closer to 90%. But anyhow, there is across the world between 70 to 80% reoffending rate, whether you're in in day programs or in custody, okay? But we keep doing it. We keep um, punishing these children because that's the only structure we have comprehension for and we operate with. But I think it doesn't work, and I want to explain to you why, because of the way trauma works. So what happens is, and this is based on the stories the kids told me, imagine you've got a four-year-old in a room, and the first thing that happens is he hears screaming next door, where his mother is screaming, there's the smashing of glass, and at this point, when this four-year-old is in the room, he experiences absolutely nebulous terror, where there's vast secretion of fright hormones, the whole stress response kicks in, and this child is just being marinated in the whole cascade of fear responses that are available to a human being. And because this child doesn't know what's going to happen next, this feeling is totally catastrophic. So the child is thinking, is my mother going to be dead? Am I going to be dead? Um, what's going to happen to me? And then at that point, the perpetrator steps in. And with these children, they were equal men and women. So I'm just going to use he, but it wasn't gender specific. The perpetrator steps in, picks up our four-year-old, boxes him in the ear, smashes him, and as one child described, throws him to the ground and sort of trods on his cheek with the shoe to the point where the child's face had the ridges of the man's shoe for days on his cheek. At the point where the perpetrator steps in, paradoxically, violence becomes quite organizing at first because in a way, it has a beginning, middle, and end. Post-assault, the child's thrown against the wall, drops down on the ground, and the perpetrator leaves, and the child may have a chance to kind of consider what the wounds are, maybe react, but there's a sort of deflation that happens at that point. So what we've had is a child going from terror what is it going to be, to a really violent contact, to then the post-assault collapse. And what happens to these kids at this point 
is that every detail of the perpetrator's characteristics and the nature of the assault is absolutely exquisitely memorized because of the availability of the fright hormone. And that memory gets locked rigid and not subjected to the processes of time. And it's delivered straight to the limbic system, which is deep inside the brain and is the emotionally driven parts of the brain. So these children are banking traumatic memories, but the way they bank them is so rigid that these memories are almost ready to come alive again because trauma does not have a, a sort of time-related history. Trauma is now, it's visceral, and it's really alive in the brain. And then you need two or three characteristics in the outside world to match the characteristic of this trauma for that trauma to come alive again with all the emotions that the child has memorized and the characteristics of the perpetrator that the child's memorized. So if the child was assaulted by a tall, purple-haired man, and he's now 16, he's sitting on the bus, and a purple-haired man walks on the bus, uh, the child may be able to cope with just the first match. But if the man then looks at the child and then shouts <coughs> at the child for whatever reason, it, there's too many characteristics that are similar to that memory, and suddenly that memory comes alive in the body of a 16-year-old, and every bit of revenge that the abused four-year-old had wanted to deliver to the perpetrator now gets acted out in its full capacity because uh, A, the child is stronger, and B, that desire is programmed. The reason I'm telling you this is because actually just this experience on its own changes the way these children function energetically. Because what happens is that A, trauma codes cellularly. It doesn't have a story, but it has the, the feeling coded. The memories code uh, in the brain. And what then ends up happening is that when these children grow up, and they experience any kind of stress that they can't calm down, because you need your frontal lobe to calm, help you calm the emotionally driven parts of your brain. And your prefrontal cortex gets developed because of the kind of attachment relationships you've had. These children are deprived of attachment and soothing capacities, and yet they're overdriven from the emotionally driven parts of their brain. But the point is, because they can't calm themselves down and soothe themselves, when they experience any kind of stress that they can't modify or react to or address, and this tension builds up, what happens is their model of managing stress mimics those very early violent experiences. And what they tend to do is they escalate the moment so that they can get some kind of a violent encounter of some sort. Because what they're really craving for is the post-assault collapse, which they believe is rest. And in that way, their entire management of the stress response changes and adapts to the conditions that they're having to endure 
and they arrive at a sort of second best, if you like, management of emotions and energy that they can't process, and it's in the context of their experiences. And my point here is that actually, if you want to achieve appropriate pro-social behavior in these children and young people, the first thing that you have to do is actually address this dysregulated uh, energy and emotional management because until you can get the child processing stress in an appropriate way, they can't even get to the point where they can stop to think, to consider their behavior. And if punishment's going to work, you have to be able to remember how that punishment didn't feel nice recall the memory of having been denied your playtime, to use it now as you're about to spit at Mary, to be able to say to yourself, last week when I lost my playtime, it didn't feel good. I must now remember that and I must use that to stop myself to spit at Mary. But actually most of these kids are in such states of biological emergency that they don't even stop and they can't retrieve memories that are not really powerful because the, the thing that populates their memory system is really extreme memories. And those extreme memories take up a lot of their energy. And to, to kind of conclude in a way, it, therefore, if you want a recovery program for children like this, there has to be a fusion of social care and health. And the reason there has to be this fusion is because the primary drivers of dysregulated um, biological states in children like this are poor social care factors <coughs> and threats in the external world. And that's why social care is needed to address those issues. But if the child has then experienced that sort of developmental assault to the point where the structure and the functioning of their brain has changed. And we've got evidence of that now because we've had UCL, Institute of Psychiatry and so on, do all the research with us. Then recovery has to be about actually uh, enabling the infrastructure of biological and social management to be embedded back into a child's system through the process of what is closest to parental care. Now, a lot of these kids don't have parents who can give them that care, and therefore the state's challenge is how can you recreate parental care with all the complexities of fusing education, social, and biological needs in the public space so that recovery is possible for the 1.5 million or so children who are being maltreated. To conclude, statistically, if you want to look at the scale of the problem, first of all, there's an unspoken understanding between central government and local authorities that the real numbers of children who are being maltreated uh, should not be captured because no one wants to actually spend the money on it. Equally, we've got structures, medical structures, to which 
practically none of these children have appropriate access. We found 70% of our children had not attended GPs or were not registered with GPs. They didn't have access to dentists and opticians because we've structured a delivery service that assumes that in every vulnerable child's life is a responsible adult who's going to take that child to appointments. And then against that, we've created a child protection system that has only between 69 to 80,000 children in care. So what we say is either a child is in care, in which case their foster carer is addressing their health issues, or the assumption is that they're with a responsible parent who must be taking them to appointments. And actually the truth we're not telling ourselves is actually many children are living with parents who are struggling to even take care of themselves, let alone their own kids. And we haven't, through lack of imagination, constructed service delivery points that embrace this sort of truth. And because of it, so many children are being denied access to basic health care. But on top of that, for traumatized children, we have not come up with a sophisticated enough clinical intellectual property to address the complexity of their difficulties and assist them through those challenges. So to conclude, I think we need to create a, a new intellectual property uh, in relation to recovery for vulnerable children that has an absolute seamless fusion of social care and health. And that both social care and health practitioners function as closely as possible to parental figures because it's not one appointment a week that's going to affect recovery. It's actually growing the child again like a parent would because what you're having to do is change the trajectory of neurodevelopment either by creating compensatory mechanisms that control the original assault or by changing the architecture, the scarring of the original assault. And that, I think, is the challenge ahead of us. Thank you very much. <clears throat>
abilities to read facial cues have completely changed. So if you're neutral, they think you're about to attack them. Most people on the bus try and look neutral. And actually, these kids, that's why they keep telling you, what are you effing looking at? Because when you go neutral, they think you're, you're going to attack them. The other thing that they're now looking at, and I've asked them to do this, is these children's relationship to eye contact, because they memorize the perpetrator looking at them and then assaulting them. It completely alters their relationship to eye contact. It's the same with their mother. When their mother's looking at them, often they perceive the mother's glance as being attacking and intrusive and disturbed because often these mothers are not tranquil enough when they're doing the reverie with their babies. So I think it's not mad. None of their behavior is no, mad. Sure. You know? And we saw that. We're seeing that in the test results, actually. Iona, you've got, I've got this uh, quote from you here. Uh, so on the one hand, the complete lack of data, a, a conscious decision not to pursue this data. The flip side of that is your quote, this is from the BMJ, we have a creation of an epidemic of symptomless disease based on deviant biometrics. So vast amounts of data and things that are questionably disease. And you follow on from that. It's time medicine got back to its core task of attempting to relieve suffering. So on the one hand, huge amounts of data that fuel an industry of medicine. No data at all um, with vast amounts of suffering. And so the question last night about choice and what we choose, um, are we, as a society, would, and I don't know the answer to this in this room, but more widely, would we choose to engage in what is visible, palpable suffering on our doorstep? We're not even having to cross an ocean to get to this rather than being, you know, consumed by, um, you know, a minimally high blood sugar or whatever. Well, exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, you said it started with the four-year-old. It doesn't start with the four-year-old. You know, it's, it starts at the very, very beginning. It may even start with... But if you construct a society that is so permeated with social injustice, you will end up with these kids. Uh, and, and it's done quite deliberately. This is a... This is a an extraordinarily polarized society that we live in uh, uh, and the predicament of people at the bottom I mean what is remarkable is, is that the, the people on the losing side of society so many of them don't get to you if you see what I mean the fact that so many people survive uh, the, the degree of social injustice to which we, we subject them um, but these kids who every, every healthcare professional is, is familiar with, you are more familiar. I think one of the most tragic things I ever was aware of is when a, a single mother, and I, God knows how anybody is a single parent. Oh, Jesus. You know, you need two of you to, to gang up against this, <laughs> this toddler because, because it's an unequal battle. Um, <laughs> A single mother of 18 who is frightened of her four-year-old, mm. who is frightened of mm. her four-year-old. I mean, I can be intellectually frightened of my four-year-old, but I am not physically frightened of my four-year-old. And uh, I think, and I think all this futile nonsense we indulge in in trying to apply technical solutions to existential problems. 
we're trying to postpone death indefinitely. We, we, we are throwing money at all these preventive interventions mm. when we know we are to... 20 years, six adverse child experiences, which all your children will have. Yeah, That's 20 years short of life. That's much bigger than mm. cigarettes and cholesterol and, it, and her blood pressure put together. I mean, it's... <coughs> the only... The only... The, the, the redirection of health and social care monies towards the under fives that is required and away from um, pushing life expectancy into the late 90s, which not many late 90-year-olds in my experience are actually thanking you for, um, is, 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 is pressing and as our baby boomer generation moves towards the 90s in all our horror, um, and we are sure to behave badly because we always have done, that is going to become even more acute. And maybe it'll reach the point where it's undeniable that we must move the money back to the... I mean, we're talking here this weekend about frontiers. And Camilla, you describe the dark gap that the vulnerable disappear into and that decision makers are unable to conceptualize the existence of children living in the underbellies of cities and that in fact those children don't have the voice or power to hold politicians accountable or indeed to hold society accountable. I, I've you know, seen politicians uh, across the years um, because I've been trying to campaign and in different political parties and what's striking for me is they lack visceral imagination so they don't um, create policies that embrace the realities of these children's lives. And I actually asked the University of Cambridge to look at how much research, clinical research, government used in forming policy in relation to child mental health, and it was 0.079%. So very little of the cutting-edge knowledge that's emerging is feeding into decision-making. And w w I find it really difficult to understand why I'm left begging all the time on behalf of these kids who have a legitimate citizenship. Uh, it's just that I think society's broken the contract of childhood where adults are supposed to be responsible for the protection of kids. Instead, it's flipped and the adults almost behave in an infantilized way where they perceive the children as the enemy against whom they've got to protect themselves. And I, I feel these moral um, and ethical political flaws are not being challenged by voters. There's a sort of apathy that lets uh, the blindness of political decision-making be sustained. Perpetuate. Yeah. We started yesterday morning with um, Christopher Potter giving us a, uh, a number of mind-boggling facts and figures that, you know, made us vertiginous in many ways, or at least, uh, you know, I hope that's, that was the aim. And I've got here, if I may, from your book, Mind the Child, a parallel, now that we're back here, a parallel set of uh, numbers. So more, this is true of Britain, these figures. More children are locked up in Britain than any other European country. More than 80% re-offend within two years. 95% of young offenders have mental health problems. One. Two, Britain's among the sixth richest countries in the world, yet we have the highest child poverty rate. Three, the age of women when they become involved in prostitution is on average just 12 years old. 
One in 15 young people are self-harming and 1.5 million children every year endure child abuse. These are, I mean, I have no way of corroborating his figures or your figures, but they're both figures. There's, that there's statistically, um, the, there are references against all mm. these figures. Mm. I mean, it's so bad. The NSPCC just produced a report called um, How Safe Are Our Children? And they couldn't get hold of proper figures anywhere. So what they were left doing is actually number crunching across a range of figures to come up with the levels of need amongst vulnerable children. So children living with parents who have substance abuse problems is 950,000 to 3 million. Children living with parents who have mental health difficulties is 50,000 to 2 million. Children living in conditions of domestic violence is just under 1.8 million. The, my point is, why are we even guessing? And the child mental health data in this country has not been updated for a decade. You know, even the numbers of road bumps we have, speed bumps, get updated annually. So this, that's, and I actually calculated that the, if for one year we stopped building um, speed bumps, we would have had enough money not to make any cuts in children's social services. It's that sort of lack of joined up thinking because actually there are much fewer children being harmed through car accidents than there are children who are being harmed through child abuse. But the thinking isn't there. But even if we take away the purely compassionate argument, an argument based on principles, let's just, let's for a moment forget that. If we look at Iona's pyramid, we, what we, the rationale for addressing this in some substantial considered fashion is so clear as opposed to last minute maneuvers that achieve nothing. Exactly, exactly. But, but unfortunately, providing universal uh, nursery care for every single, with, with specialist um, uh, mental health um, and, and nursery expertise, which you need and should be universally available for, for children because we've got our society in such a damaged way. Nobody makes a profit out of that. That's the trouble. But medicating the results higher up the pyramid makes a fortune. Cholesterol, the, you know, Lipitor, the highest selling pharmaceutical in the history of the I world. I just wonder if I'm being naive, though. And if I am, I'm almost glad that there is a shred of that left. The, the notion, though, that there's, that actually in, in this country in 2014, we can make a conscious call not to collect that data. Because uh, it will be conscious. Of yeah, it's it conscious. is. It's absolutely conscious. Get, yeah. And I stand by it. Yeah. I absolutely stand by it. Marilyn Because Martin. I've challenged um, the one of the education ministers, uh, you know, because they come, on, they come on and they say, and this is all the creative things we're going to do. And this is what we're going to do. This is the ghosting uh, comment. Yeah, you made. The whole, this is actually, uh, you know, the ministers. Yeah, yeah. Well, each minister who comes along sort of. Uh, suddenly comes up with this beautiful tree of things they're going to do. And you just sit there and you ask them, are you going to collect the numbers of children who are being maltreated in this country? Are you actually going to take up that challenge and capture the data? And do you know what they say immediately? 
oh, my parents foster, oh, I'm adopted. It's almost like that just has now become the defense mechanism uh, for ministers. The minute you challenge them about something, they want to show you that they know all about vulnerability and so on because their parent fosters or they've been adopted themselves. You know, actually, this doesn't work. You know, they need to understand there's a requirement for rigor in this area and they don't want to face it. I had someone very high up, and it would blow your mind if I told you who it was, but someone very high up inside Downing Street once said to me, we know children's social services is not fit for purpose, but none of us want to go near it, Camilla. And that's it. As Marilyn Moore, bringing us back to great poets, omissions are not accidents. No, no. A phrase that you use, which I, I mean, it strikes me, is this, this term the protected mm. um, rather you know rather than necessarily the privilege so, so in, in a, and that gives me an, an, the image that comes to mind anyway is, is of a relatively sparse protected under a glass bowl whilst around us you know all hell <laughs> breaks loose and we're pretty comfy under that glass bowl but you know it's going to change because the drug dealers now for example, and I want to show you how these things are systemic. When I first started, the drug dealers were pulling in 15 and 16-year-olds who had knives and getting them to courier drugs. Now they're taking eight and nine-year-olds and using them as couriers for drugs. They're using very young children to put drugs in the vagina of girls in and they're forcing these kids to go to the countryside and then what they're doing is they're making children hand out drugs to other children in the countryside, getting them addicted, and then they're setting up drug houses from where they're doing a business. It's an actual active decision on the part of drug dealers in inner city environments to spread the business to the countryside. In about five years, there's going to be such a difficulty and the countryside's police is not geared for this because now the 14 and 15 year olds have got firearms. Um, you, and just last month, we had one boy, someone drove on a bike uh, with a balaclava, shot at a boy inside a car and the boy had the presence to lift his legs up, so he protected his heart, but he got sprayed with 13 bullets. And this is Britain, this is not Syria, but you know, it's just, and people, the police know it's going on, but actually it's not spoken about. So consequently, large numbers of children are surviving in a British war zone here, and no one does anything about it, and that's why I get angry on behalf of the kids because we can see it day in, day out. We're going to raise the house lights in a minute now. Um, in fact, if we could raise them. And as they're coming up, just for a final word from both of you, why are you having to beg? And what is medicine's duty here? I, I'm having to beg because when kids come directly to a charity and ask for help, there is no financial modeling for that. So in 18 years that we've been going, we haven't had one pence from a local authority 
to pay for these children's social care or mental health delivery that we're having to deliver. In addition to that, I have to spend about a million on in-house social workers and lawyers to police the local social work departments because by law, we're not allowed to take an under 16 into our care, but we're left with a situation where the social work department doesn't want them either. So we ha having to use our solicitors and our social workers to push the child into the system and track the child inside the system. So the reason we're not ending up with money is because we mirror the disenfranchisement of our children systemically. And <coughs> consequently, I'm left with having to fundraise through cupcake sales and cocktail parties for something that is so urgent. And these kids so need that protection. And they deserve to have that protection and for it not to be reliant on whether I open a restaurant or I manage to you know, end up doing some silly billy thing somewhere to try and get some money, you know, to, to meet this need. Two things that medicine should do. One is remember our power for advocacy. Um, every single, certainly GP, knows what goes on with, with, with vulnerable children, and they know how many of them there are, and, and, and you're just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so our power of advocacy and also, it is, so, it is so tempting to get locked into the incremental making treatments of, of things just a little bit better, giving people another three days of life for 20 years of drugs. It's, it's so easy to get sucked into that and I, I think that we need to I, 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 I hate the idea of a national health service, not, not the NHS, but I, this thing that we should have a national, uh, we, should have a, we have a national sickness service and we should have a national health service. I, I hate that dichotomy. We should have a, na a national sickness service. We should look after people of sick first. But our first responsibility is to those who are sickest. We should, we should leave the well alone because we tend to harm them much more than we harm the sick. And we should, and we know, we know so much about the power of trauma in childhood to, to, to damage health that we, we should be, all of us, as a medical profession, as, a health, as healthcare professionals, arguing for investment in, in early years services. And journals like the BMJ and so on, they've got to lead on these things. You know, they, this is the sort of, these journals are the intellectual drivers and they've got to embrace these topics. I heard people p complaining that this year's medicine box hadn't been political enough, and I hope we've attempted to balance that up a little. <laughs> right. There's one right in the middle there, Sam. Uh, Sarah, is it? Hello. Is that near? Yeah. Um, I've got a four-year-old, and um, I, I used to be a medical secretary, that's why I'm here and I'm a poet. Um, my query is, um, he has a meltdown about once a week at the moment, and it takes about 45 minutes for him to calm down sometimes. And you hear similar stories from other parents, and then you, you wonder whether you need to seek any kind of help with the management or communication between you and your child. 
Um, and you also worry if you do go and see somebody about that, whether they will be recorded as a vulnerable child then, and then you you are in their books <coughs> or on their list. And okay. Um, so the question yeah. is, how so do you identify? The question is, how um, at what point do you know whether you need management or communication help with your child? The 45 minutes is really interesting because uh, what we've looked at is when uh, a child gets very distressed, and it's the same process in trauma, the, the and the distress is extreme, the emotionally driven parts of the brain, the limbic system shuts down, the frontal lobe shuts down, and the child starts operating from brainstem predominantly. And that's about 45 minutes of a tantrum-like behavior. It's exactly that process that results in a kid stabbing someone for 45 times, you know, and people say, the first time the guy died, why did he carry on? The answer is there's something in the brain that doesn't allow anyone to stop until they've completed that cycle. So actually, these tantrums are maturity, developmental, um, you know, journeys when they're at this age. But if you're experiencing them as being more than that, I think it's really important that you go and seek help um, but document the fact that you've sought help in writing so that they don't turn it on you. Yeah. Thank you. Any others? Oh, up, up top, is there a microphone? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you so much again for, uh, to both of you for your talks. Um, uh, the political turn and the political and the sociological turn that this um, took, I think uh, it's a very general question, but Camilla, <coughs> what what you bring up is, um, I think, something that maybe hasn't been addressed um, from uh, in in all the talk about medicine is is that you you ask for help from the politicians or from from people that uh, and very very sort of intentionally and clearly ask for help. I wonder if medicine can also ask for help. Um, and I think that's where envisioning health as part of a democracy and, and kind of the, the very <laughs> be the change you want to see in the world. Uh, uh, the fact that we are so, oh, now I'm getting into fluffy language, <coughs> but, but the no, interconnectedness. No, I think so that's, if I may, just in the interest mm. of time, are you saying that our doctors, our health professionals, good as bodies in asking for that kind of change. It's interesting, isn't it? it? Maybe I'm wrong, but it's stuck in my head that we're very good at striking or being cross when our personal rights are being infringed. How often do we see, um, as, as groups and as bodies, us, you know, championing a particular version of I mean, people like Ray Tallis, do, you know, individually we do, but as a body, we're very bad at asking for social justice. I think we're, we're quite good at the individual level. Yeah. You know, we're quite good at writing housing letters, ringing counsellors, uh, ringing housing inspectors, you know, trying to improve the situation of a single family. I agree that our representative bodies have been very, uh, have not been the source of powerful advocacy that they potentially have. What does it say very much for us uh, as a profession? I think there's a reason for this. I think generally in the culture um, of Britain, is this shame around caregiving. Hmm. So anybody who is a deliverer of care is often perceived 
as a failing bod or worthy person or whatever. And also, I think that's interjected by the profession. So the professions are very kind of um, groveling, grateful for whatever morsel they get to do their jobs with. And they don't uphold the rights of care as central, as important as the economy, as important as foreign affairs. That cultural shift needs to take place in Britain. Okay. Thank you. Question, um, Terry. Hi, uh, Camilla, thank you for coming today. You've been a hero of mine for 18 years. Thank you. You're also a hero for many, many social workers up and down the country, and I want you to know that I was a social worker in child protection and adoption for the whole of my life, and it's very good to hear your take on things. I wholeheartedly agree with you. It's difficult sometimes to stand up in care proceedings and other official things and say, please stop calling this child naughty. Mm. They are not naughty children when you've got chief constables and the care workers. I would just like to say, I think there are one of the reasons why people don't want to look into this from politicians to anybody else is that the problem is huge. It's really enormous and it's got to be tackled on many fronts. One of the reasons we're in this state is because social work has always been um, a Cinderella profession and the more scandals we have, the worse it gets. We're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. Part of that is because we don't get a very good press. We don't get an opportunity to have a realistic press in the time between the scandals. And I'm quite sure a lot of people, our politicians included, think that neglect means something not very nice in your lunchbox. Actually, it means no furniture, no food, no clothes. Next day, you might have a bit, and then you go home, and it's still the same. You sleep behind the sofa. There's never, ever been a bed. You don't know when your next meal is coming from. You sit next to someone at school, and the teacher moves them because you smell, mm -hmm. and you've got things crawling around in your head. I do feel that social workers have got to try and t take back what little power we had. But if we could call on doctors who've traditionally had much more power than us to get in at the health end, that would help. But thank you again for being here. You are being listened to across the country. It's just that we can't do what we want to do. I couldn't do the job I was trained for in the current climate. Thank you, Camilla. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We've got three very quick questions. So someone's got the microphone, and then in the middle row here, please, if we can get a microphone there, and then the gentleman at the front. Okay, we thank you. Briefly, if you can. Thank we, you. We heard, we heard from um, Iona about the prescience of the 1969 uh, quote she made. I'd like to quote very briefly from an early 1970s prescient man, Ivan Illich. Um, was there ever a, um, a, an opening sentence to a book that was designed better to entice you into it? I quote, the medical establishment has become a major threat to health. Thank you. And, and, and I would further that with this discussion now, um, that it's not just the medical establishment, it's the whole of the establishment. Yeah. And I feel a sense of helplessness with what is silence, maybe a per perpetuation of a culture of vengefulness, which certainly doesn't help. 
and within my helplessness have um, both the speakers got any suggestions what I and anybody else here can do to begin to redress some of these awful things that we're hearing about? Camilla, briefly. Um, write to your MPs, protest, insist that the issue of vulnerable children and their care should be prioritised and hold them accountable on behalf of these kids who can't do the writing. And all of us, I mean, I, I'm multiply guilty compared to you, all of us forego our, you know, our, what, the luxuries that we kind of champion in modern medicine for a wider world view, uh, reinventing, in a sense, what, what we perceive of as our, as our duties. Yeah, uh, thanks, this is on. Yeah. Um, I've heard a strong plea from you both for a closer relationship between children's services and uh, the health services and the NHS, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but at the moment, uh, as I understand, children's services are more with education, and I think that that also makes a lot of sense. You know, they're, they're a very strong sort of alarm system for, um, for when things are going wrong. And we've heard arguments this afternoon for and against multidisciplinary teams. Um, I'd just like to hear a bit more about what your, your model would be. Or should, it be part, or should children's services be part of the NHS? Or, or education. Or education or something. In, is there another model? How would you I would it? go for a department of child and family resilience. I would conceptualize the whole thing as resilience. And if you didn't want to dramatically change government departments, I would put it all in health, but with the package that it is literally the department of child and family resilience, and, and then in there I would put child protection, uh, child mental health, youth offending, children with additional needs, um, and that I think, and give it a shit-hot minister instead of the rejects, you know, that get the brief, yeah. Right, final question, thank you. It's actually very related to that. It was just a question to see whether you've seen any models or if there's been anywhere in any countries where this has been done well, where you've seen this question. been done. Well, I think, uh, I think the, the, it's this thing as us having more children in custody than any other European country. So basically you could learn from any other country in the world, um, but particularly you could learn, I think, from Scandinavia, who have a much, much less punitive attitude and I love it. it's the story from Finland about they, they appointed an inspector of schools who promptly abolished the role and who now goes around saying that inspection doesn't make help children you know inspecting teachers making teachers afraid does not help so you know and now what have we got we got health you know terrorized by inspectors under every sort of corner of carpet it's it's it, it, Talk about not dealing with the actual problem. I'm reminded of Amartya Sen, who says, we do not have, a, have to have a perfect world before we start addressing the injustices right under our nose. Investing in inspectors and inspectors of inspectors and inspectors of inspectors and inspectors, instead of it providing services directly to children and their families, is a world run crazy. Um, ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause for you. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you.